Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure that you are in fellowship and ready to study the Word, ready to focus on what God the Holy Spirit is going to be teaching you this evening as we go through these passages and as you come to a better understanding of God's plans and purposes in human history. And our lives are part of that, so it directly impacts our understanding of how we fit within the scope of God, the outworking of God's plan in history. So let's bow our heads together and pray. Father, we are so thankful that we can come to you. You are an ever-present help in time of need. Father, we have immediate access to the throne of grace because of what the Lord Jesus Christ did on the cross, and he sits now as our advocate, our intercessor at your right hand. Father, tonight as we study your word, we continue to uh, probe into what you have revealed about the future, but it is not simply a study in what will happen yet future, but it helps us to understand the entire flow of history and why things have gone the way they've gone in history. gives us a lot of insight into the uh, different trends that occur even in our own day and perhaps as we study your word and our thinking is, is made more objective by this study, it gives us a better understanding, appreciation, and evaluation of the things that are happening uh, even in our own world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 17. Revelation ch- chapter 17 where we look in these last two chapters of, of um, the tri- they cover the tribulation on the focus on the destruction of Babylon. Chapter 17 focuses on the religious aspect of Babylon and chapter 18 the economic or commercial aspects of Babylon and together they make up the political kingdom of Babylon which is just the final representation, manifestation of the kingdom of man on the earth. And there's this battle that has gone on in human history since the time that Adam fell between the kingdom of man, man's attempt to organize himself, the human race to organize their activities toward their own goals undefined by God in rebellion against God, seeking to assert their own autonomy, trying to find peace, happiness, and stability apart from God. This causes man to live in a dream world. They just generate their own little fantasy world of what is going on, what's right, what's wrong. And we see these trends even today. The, when you watch the response of, of so many people in political power, 
uh, military power today in their response to the shooter in at Fort Hood last week, and they just want to discount his religious beliefs. It can be anything, whatever it is. He's crazy. He's nuts. He's uh, psychologically out of sorts. But let's accept any explanation. But the fact that he believed what the Quran said, and so he uh, went out and killed the unbeliever. People do not understand. Do, you never hear anybody talk about it. It's been taught by many people. The truth is available. In Islam, there are two groups of people on the earth. There are those who are in the house of peace, and there are those who are in the house of war. Peace is for only for those who are in the house of peace. And the house of peace, the uh, Arabic word for peace is a cognate of the Hebrew word, uh, shalom, it's salam, and Islam is a cognate of that, and it means submission. And the only way that there is peace for anyone in the Islamic religion is for human beings to submit to Allah. And those who have not submitted to Allah are not in the house of peace, and peace is not for them. War is for them, and they are be, to be uh, destroyed and defeated and killed by those who are Muslims, and that's in the Quran, it's in the Hadith, just just pick it up and read through it if you can. But that's what it is, and to deny that is to just live in a fantasy world. And the more men live in this fantasy world generated by their own sin nature, their own rebellion against God, the more they're going to make bad decisions from a position of weakness, and the more they're going to make themselves vulnerable to all manners of attacks, whether they're internal, external, whether military or just economic collapse, whatever it may be, the more the governing powers, and by governing powers I don't mean just elected political officials, but major the, the um, uh, upper echelons in business, the upper echelons in the uh, powers behind the political powers, the more the people who really uh, manipulate, motivate the world system uh, live in a fantasy world, the more they are going to create um, a, a house of cards and until the least little thing will topple it. And then that is when civilizations collapse historically. God warned the Jews about this as they were headed towards the divine discipline of the assault from Babylon in both Isaiah and Jeremiah that the characteristic of this kind of arrogance is to call good bad and to call bad good. And there's just a reversal of the polarity of good and evil. And the more you live in that kind of a upside-down way of thinking, the more uh, dangerous it becomes to yourself and to everyone around you. And when that characterizes the leadership of industry, the leadership in business, the leadership in economics, the leadership in politics and education, then that civilization is just waiting for the least little thing to cause it to collapse. And only believers have the truth. And when that time comes, and there have been many doom and gloomers and doomsayers come along the last uh, 40 or 50 years, I have a tendency to discount that because that's just not my personality to get all caught up in doom and gloom. I remember back when I was a senior in high school, somebody came to a church youth group and presented a, gave a presentation on how uh, by the late 70s, 
uh, the earth would no longer be able to produce enough uh, agricultural products to feed the population because we were exploding at such a high rate. And that hasn't happened yet. And every, every decade there's more doom and gloomers coming along. You know, the sky is falling and the uh, uh, stock market is going to collapse and we're all going to be uh, living in some sort of a soylent green type of environment and all of these things. And I believe that it, something like that is going to happen, but it's going to happen in the tribulation after the rapture. Now, we may have collapses and civil, civilization collapses prior to that that aren't to that degree, aren't to that extent. There's no guarantee that uh, the United States of America, with the freedoms that were guaranteed in our Constitution by the Founding Fathers, is going to last another five or, five or ten years. There's nothing that has been written uh, in stone on that. We could, uh, our society could easily collapse like uh, dozens of others have in history uh, from the inside, just rot on the inside because of our moral relativism, our rejection of God, and our refusal to live on the basis of uh, any kind of biblical truth. That is exactly what will happen in the end times when the kingdom of man reaches that point when it just will it will collapse both from internal and external pressure and God will bring judgment upon uh, upon the kingdom of man which is depicted in its greatest city and that is Babylon and that's what we see coming into uh, chapter 17 now last time when I uh, ended I showed a four-minute YouTube clip from this speech from Lord Moncton up in uh, <clears throat> Minnesota where he was talking about the coming uh, international meeting in Copenhagen where they had originally intended to sign a, an international, a new international treaty r- related to uh, global warming and capping CO2 emissions and all of these other things. There is still the push to do as much of that as they can, but because the United States Congress has been, thankfully, mired in health care reform, they haven't been able to address the global warming uh, issue, and so there's no global warming policy to take to Copen, uh, Copenhagen. There are other problems that have come up, and you know, we all may laugh. Some of you may laugh at the fact that someone, that our president was given a uh, Nobel Peace Prize on his hopes and dreams. And, of course, that, um, but that means that he's got to go to there to get his Nobel Peace Prize instead of Copenhagen. So it's just interesting how God works these things out. But the reason I really showed that video was not because I was in agreement that what he said was fact and truth and would happen and there would be this international treaty signed at Copenhagen that would wipe out uh, national distinctives. But to show you that this is the trend, this is constantly the push. And if it doesn't happen at Copenhagen, and it probably won't, it's going to happen some other time. Each decade has gone by. If you think back over the past 50 years, you see the erosion of national distinctives and this push, this consistent push towards 
uh, globalism, towards uh, internationalism, towards international cooperation, that somehow if all the nations can just come together, hold hands, sing Kumbaya or We Are One or something like that, that uh, we will have peace and stability in our time. And that's the push. Eventually that will happen and it will culminate in the uh, rise of this person that is identified in the Bible as the Antichrist, the first beast of Revelation, the prince who is to come from Daniel chapter 9. But uh, I'm not saying that that's happening now, but we just see these trends and it, there's more and more things of that nature that are happening around us. And so people think, jump irrationally to the conclusion, Jesus is going to come back before I die. Now, I remember reading Hal Lindsey's book, Lake Great Planet Earth, back in 1973, and was absolutely convinced, based on what he said, that Jesus would come back before 1984. Now it's, oh, golly, it's 2009. Oops. And reading other people, and people get excited. I know, I know personally that Dr. John Walbert, president of Dallas Seminary, loved prophecy, understood that the coming of Jesus at the rapture was imminent, that none of the signs were related to his coming, but he was convinced for many years that the rapture would uh, occur most likely before he died. We can't bank on that. Jesus is going to come back when he's going to come back, and we need to be prepared for that as if it's going to happen to, in, in the next 10 minutes. He may not come back, and you may have a major coronary in the next 10 minutes. We always have to live as if in the next five minutes we are going to give an account to God for our lives at the judgment seat of Christ. We don't know how much time we have left, but we ha also have to live as if that's not going to happen. So we have this tension. We live to God's glory, recognizing that at any moment we may be called upon to give an account for our life, our decisions uh, before the judgment seat of Christ, but also recognizing Jesus may not come back. We may not be taken to be with the Lord for another 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And in that time, we need to live wisely and we need to continue to be involved in various efforts to promote the gospel, to send missionaries, to train pastors, to establish uh, seminaries, to plant churches, to be involved in evangelism and the teaching of God's word and not allow ourselves to somehow be duped into thinking that it just can't get any worse than this, can it? Uh, Jesus must be, Jesus coming must be around the corner. And it's amazing how many people have, Christians, evangelical Christians think that and it causes them to disengage from the world. Some of you know that, uh, Four, I think it was three or four years ago, we took a group to Israel, and on that trip there were some people who were filming a documentary, asked to come along. They were given permission to come along, and they filmed interviews with every, a lot of different people on the group, came to the pre-trib rapture study group conference in December, filmed interviews with uh, Dr. Fruchtenbaum and Tim LaHaye and several other people there, which never made it into the uh, final draft of the, the of the film, but they also had gone to a some sort of prophecy conference in uh, North Carolina earlier in the year, and there they had met a family that had attended this conference that was from Oklahoma, 
And so they wanted to visit with that family, get to know them, talk to them, and uh, they were invited by that family to come back, spend some time with them in, in their home in Oklahoma. And it's, it's scary, it's so wrong, and you just cringe when you hear somebody do this, but unfortunately there are many evangelicals who do believe this. The woman, the mother, as well as her, I think it was her 17-year-old teenage daughter, both made statements to the effect that, well, I'm, you know, the da- regarding the daughter's future, that she was probably never going to get married, and they were convinced she would never even graduate from college because the Lord's coming was that soon. And there are a lot of people who feel that way. Now that girl's probably about to graduate from college. She may even be married now. Who knows? Uh, four years have gone by. A lot can change in that time. And Jesus hasn't come back. So we can't convince ourselves to disengage because Jesus is coming back. That's just as much of a fallacious uh, fantasy as what the uh, world system operates on. Okay, let's just pick up where we were in terms of a little review. Revelation 17 and 18 are going to focus on the demise of Babylon. Babylon's destruction, judgment, the final destruction was announced in Revelation 14.8. And uh, in Revelation 16.7, her destruction was depicted as drinking the cup of the wine of the anger of God's wrath. Details weren't given, but now we come to the details. This is typical of any kind of Hebrew writing where there's summary and then there are specifics that are given. In the first three verses, we have a summary announcement of the judgment to come upon Babylon given by this angel, one of the seven angels who had poured out the uh, bowl judgments. And John is invited to come and witness the final judgment. It's one of those invitations that is, that is too good of a deal. Uh, he made him a deal he couldn't, couldn't refuse. So he's invited to come, but he has to come. And so the angel says, Come and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. And the word there for on, epi in the Greek, can mean upon or near. Uh, many waters, and there is somebody pointed out a uh, an apparent contradiction between verse one and verse uh, three. In verse one, the woman is depicted as sitting on many waters, and in verse three, at the end, she is sitting on a scarlet beast. Actually, you have to understand what is happening here in verse one. The angel is simply summarizing the overall influence of this. Great, this harlot who represents Babylon. She sits on many waters, indicating that, that there is an influence on, as we'll see, waters means the nations, and that is, uh, a summary of her activity down through the ages. In verse three, we shift to a more specific orientation, which has to do with the woman's posture within the tribulation. So verse 1 is looking at her influence through the ages. Verse 3 is the influence of the woman uh, in, within the tribulation. The phrase I pointed out last time of talking about sitting on many waters was a, a standard description of Babylon as seen in Jeremiah 51.13. Babylon was called the those who dwell upon or by the waters because of all of the many uh, irrigation canals that radiated out from Babylon in order to uh, bring water to the, to the fields. Uh, 
in uh, verse 1, the angel says, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot. And the word there for judgment, uh, krima, emphasizes both the sentence as well as the enactment of the sentence. Now, one other thing I pointed out last time I want to expand on as we go forward in this chapter is that there are two times in Revelation when an angel comes to John. In both cases, it's an angel, one of the seven who poured out the bowl judgments, comes to John and says, come, I will show you something. And the first is this angel showing him the the abominations, the horrors of the uh, of, of Babylon, the kingdom of man. There is another angel from this group of seven who will come to John in chapter 21 that will, and will show John the... Um, show John the bride of Christ, and that is intentional. There is a specific contrast between this section, which is uh, 17, chapter 17, 1 through 19, 10. That's a complete integrated sec- section, and that section stands in contrast to Revelation 21, 9 to 22, 5. There is a contrast between Babylon and the evils of Babylon and the bride of Christ. There is the contrast of the devil's prostitute or the harlotry, the immorality or unfaithfulness of the kingdom of man versus the purity of the bride of Christ. On the one hand, the devil's uh, prostitute is one that seduces and entices man to man's destruction. And the bride of Christ is the source of the gospel, the source of truth, the source of the message that leads to life and eternal glory. On the one hand, the kingdom of man appeals to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, whereas in contrast, the church is to manifest the character of the Lord Jesus Christ in being a humble and obedient servant. Harlot in uh, of Babylon is depicted as being clothed in the temporal riches and the material glories of the world, whereas the bride is depicted as being simply clothed in white linen, depicting the uh, good works, that is, the divine good, the fruit of the Spirit uh, that has been produced in the life of the church. And she is depicted as sitting on many waters. Now, this is the first time in Revelation that we have seen a... uh, uh, an interpreting angel. In Daniel, there was frequently an interpreting angel where a vision would be seen by Daniel, Daniel 7, Daniel 8, Daniel 9, and then an angel would explain not only exactly what he had seen, but what it meant. It was not left up to man to uh, come up with his own interpretation. That's what First Peter's talking about, that uh, there's no private interpretation uh, of, of prophecy. There is an objective, not a subjective interpretation of Scripture. So you just have to read the text to see what the uh, different things might symbolize. And in verse 1, the great harlot sits on the many waters. Verse 15, the angel said to John, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. That fits with the fact that it is the the first beast that comes out of the waters. It was the four beasts that Daniel saw coming out of the waters that the four beasts depicted the successive kingdoms 
that would dominate in the kingdom of man, that Satan would influence history through those Gentile nations. And that is critical for developing a biblical view of history and nations. I think we have a tendency to uh, glorify human nations and glorify human history. Now, there are many things that can be uh, glorified, many things that have been honorable in the history of our nation, the history of other nations, but ultimately all nations in human history have played into these empires, and these empires have controlled and dominated history, as we'll see since the uh, early civilizations of man, Egypt and Assyria and Babylon and Greece and Rome, and we tend to glorify the positive things of those empires. And yet when God gives his uh, evaluation and depicts them, he depicts them as ravenous beasts, Oh, but what about the Romans in Roman law? And what about the Greeks and their philosophy? God says it's bestial. It is the best that human viewpoint could produce, and it is destructive. It is arrogant. And we have to use that as our framework when we interpret, uh, when we interpret human history. And it is the great harlot that sits on the many waters that depicts the influence, satanic influence on the nations of the world, the cultures of the world, the civilizations of history, because from the time of of Adam's fall, there has been this battle in human history between the kingdom of man, man's attempt to assert his own independence from God and his own kingdom and authority seeking his own peace and happiness versus God's way, man's way versus God's way. And so the great harlot depicts the systems of thought that characterize human viewpoint. There may be many different ways in which human viewpoint manifests itself, but it always has two characteristics. The first characteristic is autonomy, And the second characteristic is antagonism. Autonomy is the assertion of independence from God, and uh, antagonism is the assertion of hostility to God. And that characterizes all human thought systems, whether you're talking about the uh, pre-Socratics, whether you're talking about uh, Plato, the Neoplatonics, whether you're talking about Aristotle, whether you're talking about uh, Kant or Hume or Kierkegaard or uh, Wittgenstein or any of the modern systems, it all comes down to uh, different ways in which man tries to make sense of his own world, his own existence, his own purpose, apart from God, rejecting the word word of God. And so we see that human civilization is uh, is set on by the harlot. She influences all of these uh, civilizations. She is called the great harlot. The word pornace, as I pointed out last time, emphasizes in a sexual way a prostitute or harlot, but also the core meaning is unfaithfulness to a covenant, specifically breaking the covenant that God had made uh, as the creator with the creature and worshiping something or something other than God as the ultimate reality. Uh, the harlot is the one with whom the kings of the earth, the power brokers of history, have committed fornication. They have been unfaithful to God, and they have allied themselves with the thinking of the 
of the world system, uh, the devil's system, and the, and, and the result is the inhabitants of the earth are made drunk with the wine of her fornication. I pointed out last time, what happens when you get drunk? Your, uh, your, your norms and standards uh, break down. Uh, you become divorced from reality. Uh, you, you can't think objectively anymore. You can't think accurately anymore. And so those who imbibe of the world's way of thinking and the arrogance of the world will ultimately be led to their own doom, their own collapse, because they have become divorced from reality. Again, the same, a, a, the verb form is used here, pornuo, which indicates uh, the same thing, basically unfaithfulness, the breaking of a covenant. And then the opening introduction concludes in the first part of verse 3, so he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. So that from 17.1 to 17.3a, it simply introduces what is going to be covered in this, uh, in this chapter. From 17.3b down through 6, we have the description of the woman who is uh, riding the beast. John says in verse in the second part of verse 3, And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. That is crucial to understand. And I've just spent a lot of time yesterday, today, going through these passages and trying to pull together the significance of that phrase in the different passages in which it, it, it appears in Revelation as well as in Daniel. So the woman here is sitting on this, on this scarlet beast. So this is the fourth beast mentioned in Revelation. The first beast that's mentioned is in Revelation 11.7, the beast who came up from the abyss kills the two witnesses. The next beast that's mentioned is the beast that comes up out of the water in Revelation uh, 13 that has the seven heads and the uh, ten horns. Then we have in the second half of Revelation 13 a, a, another beast. That's the false prophet. And then we have this beast. Each one of those beasts has to be carefully analyzed, and some people try to merge them together, but you just can't do that, and that is important for just understanding the dynamics of what's happening at the end of the tribulation. So she is sitting on this scarlet beast, and that depicts that the woman is like a rider of a horse, rider of a camel, is in control of the beast. The beast here represents the kingdom. The woman represents the thought system that has carried throughout all of history, the human viewpoint thinking that characterized Satan's original rebellion against God, man's rebellion against God uh, initially in the garden, uh, more developed uh, during the period before the flood than during the period of the Tower of Babel, and that this thought system is riding the beast. That's what controls the beast. And the beast is identified as having seven heads and ten horns. And later in the chapter, the, those seven heads are going to be identified in verse uh, 9 as seven mountains on which the woman sits. And mountains are 
often used in Scripture to depict a kingdom. It's also defined in verse 10 as they are also seven kings. One of the difficulties in going through these passages is that the king, the leader of the kingdom, is often used to simply represent the kingdom. And so it seems to slip back and forth where in one place it's talking about the beast as the person who runs the kingdom, the Antichrist, and then in the next statement you're thinking, well, this sounds more like the kingdom than the person running the kingdom because they are so closely identified uh, with one another. So verse 10 says there are seven kings. Those seven kings are the seven mountains on which the woman sits. These just represent seven different kingdoms in history that has nothing to do with the seven hills of Rome. And verse 10 then says that of these seven kings, five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. This goes on to be defined in verse 11 as the beast that was and is not and is himself also the eighth. And his other seven is going to perdition. Well, we have to figure out what all of that means, and we're not going to get there uh, tonight for sure. But that helps to define the seven heads and ten horns. What we will see is the seven heads represent the seven kingdoms historically that have manifested the kingdom of man under Satan's influence and under his power. And they start with Egypt. And you have Egypt and then Assyria and then Babylon and then Persia and then Greece and then Rome, and then the future manifestation, the resurrection, remanifestation of the kingdom of Rome. What do all of these nations have in common? They were all anti-Semitic. They all assaulted Israel and the Jews, and they were all enemies of Israel, Egypt, Assyria, uh, Babylon, Persia, all the way up to Rome. So when we look at these two verses... I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. It is satanic influence over the kingdom of man. And the the seven heads represent the historical manifestations. And the ten horns represent the end time manifestation of of that kingdom. As we saw when we studied these things in chapter 12 and 13. Revelation 17.4, the woman is arrayed, describes her dress, and it's uh, the purple and the scarlet. uh, Same words are used in describing the uh, fabrics, the dyes used in the tabernacle, the temple, the royal robe that they put on Jesus uh, before he went to the cross, gold and precious stones. All of this simply depicts the wealth, the commercial uh, prosperity of the kingdom of man that has all of this uh, wealth. And in her hand is a golden cup that's full of abominations. This word is often used of idolatry and the filthiness of her unfaithfulness to God. That's how we should understand that word. Now, when we look at this imagery of the seven heads and ten horns, the first time we see this in Revelation is in Revelation 12.3. And there it is Uh, the description of the great red dragon, which is Satan, identified later in chapter 12. The great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. So what this depicts is the dragon, 
Satan as the power of the kingdom of man. The dragon is the power of those seven heads, the historical manifestation of the kingdom of man, and the ten horns, its final manifestation in the future. So this verse depicts the dragon as the power of the kingdom of man. The dragon is the one who has the heads and the horns. Now, we go. We saw last time, I put this up to show you that the dragon was a an animal that was uh, sacred to the worship of Marduk, a symbol of the uh, of Marduk, and who was the patron deity of Babylon, and this fits uh, fits in with this this imagery. Then when we skip to that was Revelation 12. Then Revelation 13, the image changes a little bit. Then John says, I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on its horns ten crowns. Now something's changed. It's not the dragon that has the seven heads and ten horns. It's the beast that has the seven heads and ten horns, and on its heads a blasphemous name. That's a, that's a new feature. So this depicts the Antichrist, because if you trace through the beast in Revelation 13, 1 to 9, it's the person, not the kingdom, but they are so closely identified that you can't really distinguish uh, between the two, although it's clear because of the head wound and other things, that it is an individual. So John says, I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, and in verse 2 is going to be described as having uh, having the uh, mouth of a lion, the feet of a bear, and it's going to uh, have the coloration and spotting of a, of a leopard, indicating its its speed, its power, its strength, all of these, all of the elements of those beasts that, that Daniel saw that depicted uh, Babylon, Media Persia, Greece and Rome in Daniel chapter 7, all of those characteristics are going to be together in this one end-time power. It will be the kingdom of all kingdoms in terms of human history. It will be the greatest manifestation of human power that has ever existed. But this verse, in terms of comparing it with Revelation 12.1, depicts the Antichrist as the personification of the kingdom of man and historically against God. So in Revelation 12, the, it is the dragon, Satan, that has the seven heads and ten horns. Here it's the beast, the Antichrist. Well, obviously, that is showing the close connection between Satan and the beast, which is going to then be developed in Revelation um, 13, Two, where we will be told that the dragon is the one who empowers empowers the beast. Let me back up a minute. No, there we go. Now I want to get before that slide. There. Okay. Well, I didn't want them to come in like that, but they're going to do it on their own. For this, the. Uh, in Revelation 12:1, we see that it's the dragon that has the seven heads and the ten horns. In Revelation 13:1, it's the beast, the person, not a kingdom, but a person that has the seven heads and ten horns. In Revelation 13:2, the dragon empowers the beast, a person. And then in Revelation 13:7, it's the beast that is the Antichrist who makes war with the saints, and he is given authority over every tribe 
tongue, and nation. That is the harlot sitting on the beast, I mean the harlot sitting over many waters, authority over the nations and the peoples and the tribes. The fact that it's uh, the dragon comes out of the, the, the sea and uh, or the beast comes out of the sea in 13.1 indicates the it comes out of the Gentile powers and again and we see this addition of the uh, of the blasphemous names on his head were blasphemous names and this is going to connect to Revelation 17.3 which described the woman as sitting on a scarlet beast which was full of names of blasphemy same phrase in the Greek. So there's this clear identification connecting the dots between these these pictures. So we see in Revelation 17, 3 and 4, this description of the woman as the influence, the power uh, representing the, the thought system that controls the kingdom, and it d- does bring about a measure of prosperity and security and wealth and success, but it is doomed to failure. Then verse 5, we saw that the title on the forehead isn't Mystery Babylon the Great, but rather should be understood as Babylon the Great. It's a mystery. The mystery, we asked that question last time, the mystery is that that there will is something that has previously been unrevealed, and what will be revealed at this time is the in, her intrinsically evil character, and this is not known except by divine revelation. Now, this is Babylon, Babylon the Great, the mother, the source of all of the harlot, the spiritual uh, harlotry, the spiritual unfaithfulness and the abominations, that is, idolatry of the earth. So this has to take us back to Genesis chapter 10 and the beginning. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 10, and we're going to uh, just hit this again. Genesis 10 and 11 shows the origin. This comes right after the flood. You have a new beginning in the human race. Sometimes you'll hear people say, well, we all trace our our way back to Adam and Eve. Yes, we do. But there's a nearer common ancestor. We all go back to Noah and his wife. Nobody here goes back to anybody else. We all have to go through that very narrow funnel of Noah and his wife to get back before we can get back to Adam and Eve. And we are told in Genesis chapter 10 that uh, we're given the sons of Ham, beginning in verse 6. The sons of Ham are Cush, Mitzrayim, uh, Put, and Canaan. Put is Libya, Cush is Ethiopia, Mitzrayim is Egypt, and Canaan. So these are all in um, North Africa with the exception of Canaan which is in the area of the land that will be given to Israel. The sons of Cush are then listed in verse 7. This is those that descended from, uh, from Cush. And the key one to come out of Cush is Nimrod in verse 8. Cush begot Nimrod, and he began to be a mighty one on the earth. And this indicates his power. Uh, the New King James, a mighty hunter. 
He is asserting himself as an organizer of men. There is a political and economic element here. Uh, He is called the mighty hunter before the Lord, and that has the idea of against the Lord. He is setting himself up over against God, and the start of his kingdom is described as Babel, or Babel, as most people say, Babel, Eric, Achad, Kalna in the land of Shinar. And he is also going to establish uh, Nineveh in verse 11, uh, Assyria. So from Cush, out of Ham, come these traditional enemies of Israel, Egypt, Babylon, Nineveh. These come out of, out of uh, Cush and Nimrod. Here's a modern map that shows us uh, Babylon. Uh, Babylon is located uh, over here just north of Karbala, right here on the Euphrates uh, to the south of Baghdad. Baghdad is here. And if you notice, it's almost, not quite, but almost due east of Jerusalem. It's a little further north of due east, but this is the battle between the source of the kingdom of man and Jerusalem, the city of peace, where God has set his name upon his holy mountain, Mount uh, Zion, Mount Zion. So Babylon is located in that area, and this then is the plain of Shinar, the uh, area of the two rivers, the area of modern Iraq where uh, American forces have been doing battle uh, for the last uh, six or seven years or so. Uh, it is up to the north of this area, in the area of Aram Naharaim, that's Aram of the two rivers. Uh, Nineveh is located up to the north uh, here, Babylon down to the south, um, south here, and of course Jerusalem off to the west. So this becomes the center, the source of the Babylonian uh, empire, the plain of Shinar, is where it began. So if you're in Genesis 10, just turn the page to Genesis 11. And the first nine verses tell us what happened. We got the summary in chapter 10. We get the details in chapter 11. The whole earth had one language and one speech, the first global society, one world government, one world society. They had a UN that was better was the progenitor and better than any other UN because everybody could understand one another. And language expresses thought systems. If you ever have the time to get to know someone who is truly bicultural or maybe even bilingual and bicultural or trilingual and tricultural, they will tell you that when you are thinking in another language, you think differently about reality than you do in another language. So that if you are raised, and let's say if you were bilingual and bicultural between being Chinese and being American, uh, I can imagine that you might be fairly conflicted at times because you, when you were thinking in terms of Chinese, you would be the, the language, the vocabulary, the, the way language is structured sort of forces you to think along a certain track. English would do the same thing. Uh, of course, see, when you're uh, a Native American, Native English speaker, that's what I mean, Native English speaker in the United States, 
you don't, we don't see that because we're, we're like the fish swimming in the water. We just don't know anything different. We just think that everybody's surrounded by water. And that's the way it is when you come up within a culture. It's not until you get outside of that culture, live in a foreign environment, speak another language, that you realize that how much language shapes the way you think, look, interpret reality around you. Words mean things. Words change things. Words express uh, express ideas. So they all thought the same. They all had one language and one speech. There was one. Uh, they, they were pretty united in the way in which they approached reality. Verse two. It came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and dwelt there. This is where a mass of uh, descendants from the fl- from the flood, the children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren of uh, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, they, they were still living to ages in the five, six hundred range, so you would have, you had as many as eight or nine generations living at the same time. This would allow for a rapid increase in the population on the, on the earth. And so they began to uh, congregate. What was the command in the Noahic covenant? Multiply and fill the earth, not multiply and uh, congregate together in cities. So they began to congregate together in cities. They said, let us make bricks, bake them thoroughly. And they had bricks for stone and asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower. So that this is the ziggurat. Uh, sort of the stepped tower, it's the um, predecessor to the pyramid, a tower whose top is in the heavens. That is, this, is a, this is spiritual. Why do you want to have a top in the heavens? You want to build this high mountain, this, this artificial mountain, so if that evil, nasty God of Noah sends a flood again, we're going to survive. This all has a, a religious motive. It's antagonistic to God. Man is asserting his own autonomy and independence. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. What's the contrast? God said to scatter. They said, let's build this so we won't be scattered. But verse 5, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of man had built. Famous artist depiction of the Tower of Babel. Uh, so he comes down. The Lord said, indeed, the people are one. They all have one language. And this is what they begin to do. See, what happens when everybody can speak the same language, they start, what? Trying to develop a conspiracy to overthrow God. And we see the same thing happening happening in our world. But as uh, God said, um, uh, now, nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Verse 7, come let us, this is obviously a reference to the Trinity, let us go down and there confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. It is clear from the Bible that the whole episode at Babel was satanically inspired to assert the kingdom of man and the autonomy of man against 
God. And God foils Satan's plot by confounding the languages and developing all of these multiple languages so that people can't talk to each other, can't communicate, and he just fragments all of human society by giving them different languages. Ever since then, Satan has been trying to reverse that and get everybody back together where everybody can communicate, be on the same page, understand each other, and create that one world government so that he can establish his kingdom upon the earth. God had scattered them, and now Satan wants to reverse that to have his own kingdom. Now, it's interesting that the EU, and I'm not saying that the EU is the uh, ten-nation confederacy that of the revived Roman Empire, but I do believe it's one of the predecessors to that, that in Europe this is a... Uh, symbol. They notice how they self-consciously took the Tower of Babel as the symbol for their unification under one government in Europe. This was intentional. Europe, many tongues, one voice was the uh, motto uh, to uh, replace what God had destroyed at Babel. So much so that when they constructed. The, their headquarters for translation in, in uh, Brussels, uh, this is the building. It was designed intentionally to look like the unfinished Tower of Babel. And so we see a continuity between the ancient system of Babylon and the modern system. And it is just a little more uh, sophisticated. So the, as the text concludes, the place was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad on the face of the earth. So the kingdom of man then begins to grow, and it has different manifestations, the Egyptians, the later the uh, Assyrians, and then the Babylonians. This is the uh, reconstructed gate of Ishtar in the uh, rebuilt Babylon in uh, Iraq right now. So, uh, Saddam was uh, seeking to rebuild it. I understand the Iraqi government is continuing the project. And what we see is that uh, Babel has an interconnected political, social, economic, and religious purposes. So all of this was coming together within uh, the, in the Tower of Babel in the whole episode there. And so this represents the beginning of man's attempt to establish himself uh, over against God. Now, the next basic place that we need to go to is in Isaiah chapter 13. Isaiah 13. Now, Isaiah 13 is, uh, and, and Jeremiah 51, these are the two key chapters on the prophecy related to the destruction of Babylon. And there have been many people, many uh, prophecy students in previous generations who believed that uh, this prophecy in Isaiah 13 was absolutely, completely, and totally fulfilled in the ancient world. That did not actually happen. But for many years, it was believed that that had taken place and so that uh, uh, this future Babylon spoken of in Revelation uh, 17 and 18 was just a figurative way, a quote spiritual or allegorical way of speaking about the revived Roman Empire and that the real center of power in the revived Roman Empire would of course have to be in Rome. And 
what else is in Rome but the Vatican, so the Pope has to be the Antichrist. And so you got this uh, uh, interpretation that dominated Western theology from the time of the, the Reformation that the Pope was the Antichrist, whether there's some sort of uh, historicist interpretation of Revelation or futurist, this has influenced uh, too many people. In Revelation 13, there is a an oracle that is uh, uh, raised against against Babylon. In this section, what is happening is there's a series of chapters here that are going to describe God's future judgment upon. Uh, the Gentile nations. And so this fits right in the middle of God's judgment on various Gentile nations, and this is going to des- describe how this will take place. Now, in verse 6, if you notice, it says, Wail, for the day of the Lord is at hand. Now, this term, day of the Lord, is a technical term for a time of unique divine judgment. And it is used primarily in the scriptures, though there are some that argue that there are a couple of exceptions. It is used primarily in the scriptures to refer to the end-time judgments at the end of the tribulation period. Sometimes it may refer to the whole tribulation period, but primarily it refers to that final half of the last half of the tribulation period, the last year or so, the uh, basically the bold judgments ending with the uh, Armageddon campaign. Wail for the day of the Lord is at hand. So the judgment on Babylon is identified here as being when? As being in the end of the tribulation period. Behold, the verse 9, behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with both wrath and fierce anger, The double use of those words is something we've seen uh, several times in Revelation. To lay the land desolate and he will destroy its sinners from it. That is, God will destroy the sinners in that land. If you skip down to verse 11, God says, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will halt the arrogance of the proud and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. I will make a mortal more rare than fine gold, a man more than the gold of a fear. So this is the judgment that is announced. And then what I want you to do is skip down to verse 19. And in verse 19 we read, And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldeans' pride, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, in Genesis 17, when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 18, what did it look like? Nothing was left. It was just a wasteland as the sulfur and brimstone came down from heaven. It just obliterated everything. It hasn't been until just recent times that we have been able to excavate some of that. And there was no one who lived on those sites. But that's not true about Babylon. It was thought to have been true, but Babylon still existed at the time of the New Testament. Babylon still existed long into uh, the church age, into the early Middle Ages, and there have been Arab villages that continue to exist on the site of Babylon up until modern times. And so this has never been fulfilled. Verse 20 states, It will never be inhabited nor will it be settled from generation to generation. 
Well, that just has never happened. That's never been true. So this prophecy regard, uh, regarding Babylon has never taken place. So there is a basis for saying there is a resurrection of a literal Babylon that will take place in the tribulation period and will be a seat of economic and political power in relation to the Antichrist kingdom. Now, I just showed you some pictures a little while ago of the attempts to rebuild Babylon. doesn't look too much like Wall Street or Washington, D.C. or London, does it? So obviously, in terms of Babylon, a lot has to happen before that can be fulfilled. And that's not going to happen necessarily overnight. Uh, I sort of feel like uh, prophecy teachers in the early 19th century who realized that Israel had to be a nation in the land before the tribulation could begin. And uh, one writer, some of you may have read his book, Dispensational Truth, Clarence Larkin said, if the rapture occurred in his generation, it might be 60, 70, or 100 years before the tribulation could begin because the Jews had to be brought back to the land. They would have to reestablish a nation. They would have to do all this infrastructure before they could begin to fulfill the events of the, of the, of the tribulation. Well, I think the same thing is true about Babylon. I think there's going to be a literal resurrection of Babylon. It's going to be rebuilt, and it's going to be a power center, an economic political power center. We're a long way from that right now. I mean, it could, it could begin. It could be, you know, happen very quickly, but I don't think it would happen uh, all that quickly. So that is uh, yet to be fulfilled in the future. Now I want to say some things next time about chapter 14, and then we'll look at Jeremiah 50 and 51 before we go back into our chapter in 17 to finish that. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening, to be reminded that there is an ongoing battle between evil and righteousness and that you settled the issue on the cross when you sent Christ to die for our sins, that he paid the penalty for sin, that salvation would come by simply faith alone, trusting in Christ as our Savior, and that it is not up to human works in order to bring about salvation. You have defeated Satan at the cross, and you will defeat him again at the end of the tribulation and again when he is released at the end of millennium, the millennium demonstrating uh, your truth and your power and demonstrating that uh, no one can have real success, happiness, or meaning in life apart from complete and total obedience to you. Father, we pray that you would uh, challenge us with the things we studied, help us to understand these things and put them into the right perspective in our own uh, interpretive grid for understanding the events around us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.